So we begin with a reminder from Luke chapter 24. Jesus had encountered the two disciples on the road to Emmaus on the day of his resurrection. They were leaving town, fearing the worst, that the one whom they thought would be the Messiah was dead. And Jesus opens their eyes so that they would see that resurrected Christ who sat across the table from them. Well, hear his words, Luke chapter 24, and verse, beginning in verse 25. He said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. We are trying to understand how Jesus taught in just a short period of time, engaged with these disciples, all the things in the Old Testament scriptures concerning himself. We would ask the question this way, how does the Old Testament point to Christ? We're taking this month to survey the divine structure of Scripture. While it is a collection of 66 books, it's it's more detailed than that. It's more than just a compilation. It's a compilation that reveals to us Christ all throughout. Now, there are many sub-stories and sub-plots that make its way through the scriptures. We often think of them as the Sunday school stories or a topical sermon on on a parable or an incident in the New Testament, a study through one of the letters, Philippians or something. But all of their messages and stories are really contributing to the voice of all of scripture which is a voice which calls our attention to Jesus Christ. Again, the outline we're studying in its stark form came to me back in 1990 in a freshman Bible class, Dr. Mark Minnick. Uh, In this day and age, there's much made of plagiarizing sermons, so I'm trying to reinforce for each recording that this outline comes from someone else, but it's helpful and I've come to appreciate it, and hopefully some part of it will stick with you. We began with the books of the law, the Pentateuch, meaning five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The books of the law, their content we summarized as laws that we could not keep and sacrifices that could not cleanse. The issue at hand is holiness. God is making known not only the standard of his holiness, but the great gap between his holiness and our sin. And the function of these books and their revelation is to create in us a longing for a perfect priest with a perfect sacrifice to bridge that gap between our sinfulness and God's holiness. We added to that the books of history. And this is all the record of the kings and judges and essentially the timeline of all those prophets who prophesied during that period. 
that chunk of Israel's history, the books of history, we summarized their content as hope and disappointment. Hope in, in the next leader being better than the last. Hope in that leader to, to rid the land of its idolatry and lead this people into righteousness, only to be met by disappointment. And the roller coaster continues for hundreds of years, dozens and dozens and dozens of judges, kings, all showing glimpses of hope only to reveal to us the frustration and disappointment of putting our confidence in any human leader. And that's the issue, leadership. These books of history create a longing for a perfect leader, a perfect king who rules over a perfect kingdom, who not only is righteous himself, but can ensure righteousness throughout the kingdom. We took a brief look at the books of poetry, which really showed us the character of that perfect king. And now today we examine these books of poetry, or prophecy, prophecy. 17 books in all, we call them major and minor prophets, but you'll remember those words would probably best be long and short. They just grouped the longer writings together. Lamentations is pretty short, but since Jeremiah wrote that, they kind of lumped that with the major, the, the long prophets. And then there are 12 short or minor prophets. But all their messages are significant, I assure you, especially if you were the people receiving those messages or judgments were targeted at that nation. Uh, there was nothing minor about them. So don't be misled by those common names that we use for the books of prophecy. This era of the prophets covers roughly 500 years of Israel's history, from the 900s to about 400. So those 500 years BC, before Christ, uh, is the era of the prophets. It really begins at the divided kingdom. Now, Saul then David and Solomon, that's the united kingdom, one king ruling over all the tribes of Israel. But you remember after Solomon, the kingdom is divided, Rehoboam and Jeroboam, northern and southern tribes. So the northern tribes were called Israel, the southern tribes are called Judah. Now, that gets complicated because sometimes those names are used for the whole group of all the tribes, as you read through the Psalms or the prophets, and then sometimes maybe Ephraim or Manasseh, one of the tribes in those kingdoms is singled out to represent the nation. Kind of depended on the prophet and the context of the story. So as you're reading your Old Testament, you'll often be thinking, oh, why is he addressing Manasseh here? Um, and it might help you to pull out even just a Bible map and see all the tribes that were north, Ten of them, and then two tribes, Benjamin and Judah, down there by Jerusalem, making the southern kingdom. Various prophets, some prophesied to the northern tribes, some to the southern tribes. These prophets warned, they predicted, and ultimately they witnessed the fall of the northern tribes to the Assyrian Empire, and then the fall of the southern tribes to the Babylonians and Nebuchadnezzar. They preached throughout the exile, and then they preached during the return. 
as the Jews came back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, the walls of Jerusalem and the city. Well, let's examine these books of prophecy using this same outline that we've used so far. What makes up the content of the prophets? Again, stark outline, because you could pick up any one of these prophets and you would find detailed account of sin that needs to be reckoned with and for. So there are many specifics, but we're trying to get to the major components. What what makes up all the content of the prophets? Two major components. First, preaching. The prophets are a great study in preaching, for it is in the prophets that we find the clearest foundation of what we would call good preaching. And it comes to us in the oft-repeated phrase, thus says the Lord. This is the foundation of sound, good preaching. We might like other words, expositional or exegetical or homiletical. There's all these preaching terms, but essentially good preaching is defined by those simple words. Thus says the Lord. That is the standard for someone to speak authoritatively in the context of the church. Be that the pulpit using the gift of teaching or be that amongst one another in speaking truth to one another. The authority of anything that is said in the church is rooted in God's authority. Has God said this? And so we will often speak of expositional preaching or exegetical preaching. Both words kind of mean to explain, to explain what God has said. So, I might not get up and say, thus says the Lord. We might just say, well, let's look at this verse or this paragraph and see what this means. So ultimately, the goal of expositional preaching is to expose the point of the passage. What did the author mean when he wrote this? Whatever the author's point is, is supposed to be the point of the sermon. That's expositional preaching. So, for example, this morning and for the last couple weeks, we've looked at Luke 24, 27. Jesus going to the law and the prophets and showing his disciples all things concerning himself. So we've gone to the law and the prophets to try to see how they point to Jesus. The point of the text in its grand theme has been the point of our sermon. So as you listen to preaching in a gathered worship service, on the radio, oftentimes commentaries are, are worked, reworked sermons. As you listen to preaching, be sure it is sourced in what God has said. As in Acts 17 with the Christians in Berea who, the text says, received the word with all eagerness examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. The apostle Paul came to Berea and and delivered the word of the Lord. But they said, okay, you're saying you're preaching for God, but we're going to search the scriptures to see if it's consistent with what we find there. 
which means you, the listener of sermons, are in an interesting position. You recognize that Hebrews tells us that you're to submit to the authorities in the church. Now, mind you, parenthetically we add, as they speak with the authority of Scripture. So you're supposed to have a spirit of submission, and I think we see that in Acts 17. They receive the word with all eagerness. However, it's not what we might call like a blind following. It's an engaged mind that that is constantly sifting the sermon, which is important, and you should receive the word with eagerness, but you're sifting it because what comes out is ultimately the authority of the word of God. Has God said these things? So receive the word, have a spirit of submission, but demand that what is said matches with what is in Scripture. So there's this submission, but what we could call almost a defiance. Like, I will receive nothing except what I see clearly in Scripture. And and that perfect blend is possible. The Holy Spirit in us is there to guide us into all truth as he did the early disciples. So we can know from Scripture what God has said without the help of the pastor. You can search the scriptures. In theological terms, we call this the priesthood of the believer. You don't need someone else to tell you what God has said. Now, God has designed the church to allow for preaching and for the exhortation amongst one another, but but that's a gift. That's not the only way that you could ever know what God has said. You, as a believer, having the Holy Spirit, should submit to the preaching of the word but demand that preaching be sourced in God's authority. For example, I can preach on the holiness of God. I suppose we did that in 1 Peter chapter 1, where Peter says God's words in the Old Testament are, be holy as I am holy. So I can call you to holiness and show you the holiness of God and his demands that you be holy. You would see it clearly in God's word. But when I start telling you that holiness looks like this, and I say, well, here's the restaurants you should eat at, and here's the ones you shouldn't, and and here's the things you shouldn't drink, and you shouldn't watch these movies, and you shouldn't square dance. Now, you should recognize that is an effort at applying the Scripture, which which is a valid part of preaching, to say, here's what the Bible says, and Let's, let's try to think on, on how we apply this to our lives. But we should be discerning that some of the sermon is, this is what God has said, and at times there are going to be moments where, and, and this is how I think it should look like. And you might go home saying, yeah, that was a great message on holiness. I, I don't know if I need to necessarily take it as far as he did or to the same extent or something. You see, we, in those moments of application, we submit to one another and we defer to one another and we love one another, recognizing we all heard this is what God has said and we may have heard some ideas about how to apply that, but now we have to take that and apply it. Some preaching classes make a, make a strong emphasis on application. 
And I don't think it's unimportant, but I've just found over the years you immediately get out on thin ice because, for one, the Holy Spirit has claimed perfect ability to take that truth and apply it to our hearts. So I don't feel compelled to have to think, how am I going to apply this to every situation that I'm aware of? It can almost become a bully pulpit where, oh, you told me about your problem, so I'm going to apply it to that problem and to this one. The Spirit can do that. The task of the prophet and the task of the preacher and the task of every Christian is to point others to what God has said. It is quick and powerful. It can discern the thoughts and intents of the heart, even if the pastor can't, and apply it to those specifics. So, a little side lesson on preaching there. But I trust, I trust it will empower you, in a sense, knowing you have the Holy Spirit. Hear, thus says the Lord, and then wrestle on the Lord's day with, how should I apply this? Because now I'm admitting I'm not going to spend all my time trying to apply it to your specific situation. You do that. Receive the word with all eagerness and then search the scriptures to see if it is so. And the end result was, Acts 17 says, they were more noble than the other Christians for that exercise. The Old Testament prophets are are filled with preaching, sermon after sermon, some to believers, some to unbelievers, some to God's chosen people, the Israelites, other to the Gentile nations, Egypt, Babylon, Assyria, the Gentile nations. Messages to the sincere, encouraging them. Messages to the hypocrites, condemning them to the people in the pew and at times to the priests in the temple with themes of mercy and themes of wrath, messages of comfort, messages of confrontation, invitations to repentance and threats of judgment to come. At times in passionate words and in other times uniquely in vivid real life illustrations. For example, Hosea being told to go and marry a woman who had prostituted herself to other lovers. The preaching was heard by many and by every indication in Scripture, heeded by very few. Preaching, one of the major components of the prophets. The second element of their content is what we probably first think of, and that is actual predictions prophetic words regarding the future. But there isn't as much of that as there is preaching. So see them both. When you hear prophets think, thus says the Lord, he's the preaching of the prophet, and then there are the predictions, these future events. Sometimes they were in the near future, sometimes in the distant future, and sometimes it's hard to tell. Sometimes there's a fog or a bit of mystery surrounding their message. And at times it's because it will be fulfilled in their day. It will be true for the people they spoke to, but in a small way and in a much larger way, it will be fulfilled in another time. Threats of judgment shape these predictions, bad things that will come, generally as warnings to motivate change and repentance. And then many predictions 
to simply serve as billboards for announcing the coming of the Messiah. We call them messianic prophecies. 456 prophecies have been numbered regarding the person and work of this anointed one that would come. The Messiah, the son of David, the servant, the branch. In the New Testament, we have a name, Jesus of Nazareth. Born of a woman, the line of Abraham, tribe of Judah, house of David, born of a virgin, taking the throne of his father David, an eternal throne. He'd be called Emmanuel. He'd be announced by a forerunner, born in Bethlehem, worshipped by wise men. He would spend time in Egypt. Infants would be massacred at his birth. He'd be called a Nazarene, be filled with the Spirit. He'd have a distinct healing ministry. He, though sent to God's people, would deal with Gentiles. He would speak in parables. He'd be rejected. He'd be praised and worshipped by little children. He'd be a cornerstone designed for a great building, but he'd be rejected as the cornerstone. He'd be betrayed for a handful of silver. He'd be called a man of sorrows. He'd be scourged. He'd be spat upon. His price money of betrayal would be used to buy a potter's field. He'd be crucified among thieves, his garments gambled for, buried with the rich, yet raised from the dead. He would ascend in clouds. He'd become a greater high priest, and he would rule the nations. All of that before Jesus is ever even born had been told to us in prophetic words and pictures. And the predictions weren't for show. This isn't like a, a crystal ball at a circus. It's not for some kind of wowing factor. It was simply to reveal God's truth, to let his people know his plan is unfolding. You can trust him in his just and merciful dealings with mankind. And yet, despite all the preaching and all the invitations and all the warnings Despite all the predictions about what would certainly happen to both the obedient and to the disobedient, God's people continued to sin. And this leads us to the issue of the books of prophecy. The issue is the issue of loyalty. Loyalty. Loyalty to the covenant that this people had made with their God. Loyalty to that agreement Sealed in blood, Exodus 24. The, the details and the agreements of the covenant were laid out in Exodus 19 and 20. God said, I will do this. I will be your God. I will provide for you. I'll protect you. I'll take you to the promised land. I'll fend off your enemies. And your part of the covenant is spelled out here. And he gave them the Ten Commandments and the other commandments. And when they were all read and all the conditions were laid out, the animals were sacrificed and the blood was captured in a basin. And though thousands were gathered, they sprinkled that blood as far as it would spread as a sign that you had entered into a blood covenant. And it was sealed. And you would keep your end of the bargain or the covenant is broken. And neither side is obligated to keep their agreement any longer. Certainly, we know God is faithful, and he wasn't going to break his side of the covenant. But what unfolds through the prophetic message is that these people broke the covenant again and again and again. 
And do you remember how God most often describes his people when they would go into idolatry? He calls them adulterers. And he uses that picture of unfaithfulness, of a broken covenant to picture their idolatry. They're walking away from God himself. They broke the covenant. They were disloyal. Jeremiah 3 and verse 9. Because she took her whoredom lightly, she polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree. The stones and trees were often shaped and mounted or cut in certain groves in the woods as places of idolatry. So Jeremiah is saying, you have all your places where you worship. You've abandoned the worship of the true God. You're adulterers. Ezekiel 23 For they have committed adultery, and blood is on their hands. With their idols they have committed adultery, and they have even offered up for them as food the children whom they had borne to me. Children born under the covenant of God is Israel, and they're offering their children to idols as this act of adultery and abandoning of the faithfulness to the covenant they made with God. They were disloyal. And so nearly 100 times in the prophets, we read the word return, return, return to this covenant faithfulness, return to the God who is merciful and ready to forgive, as the prophet said, who can bury your sin in the depths of the sea, who can remove it from you as far as the east is from the west, return to this God who is ready to forgive dozens Dozens and dozens of times return is the message of the prophets. We think their message is all about the Assyrians are going to destroy you off the land or the Babylonians will wipe out Jerusalem. And it's those passages of dashing infants against rocks or cutting them with a sword out of their mother's womb that are so graphic and horrible in their judgment. But that's not the loudest cry of the prophets. It's the cry, return to me. Though I have wounded you, God said, it was designed to bring you back so that I might heal you. Return. Isaiah 55, 7, Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and return to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Jeremiah 3 and 12 Go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. They needed to be loyal to the law of God. It was the basis of the old covenant. They needed to be loyal to the God of the law to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of their fathers, they called him, to the God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, the foundation of the covenant. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Exodus 1 and 2. Thou shalt not begin the commandments. Loyalty to the law of God and loyalty to the God of the law. So after all this preaching and all the predictions, 
The record of these people is one of sin, idolatry, and disloyalty. And this reality helps us grasp the function, which you can probably kind of fill in there on your own. The books of prophecy are designed to create in us a longing for the perfect prophet with a perfect message. Despite powerful preaching, despite even foretelling the future, which God graciously revealed to warn these people, they still did not get it right. Was Ezekiel, with all of his bizarre visions and demonstrations, not illustrative enough for people to see this is important? Was Isaiah with his messianic servant songs presenting that coming Christ in all these beautiful arrangements, was he not Christocentric enough for us to realize we should go God's way, we should be looking for God's anointed one? Was Jeremiah the weeping prophet not passionate enough? Was Habakkuk with his faith laid bare, God, what are you doing? You can't do that. Was he not transparent enough? Admittedly, at times, the message is hard to wrestle with. Is this an immediate partial fulfillment now, or is he speaking of a full and distant fulfillment of that prophecy later? When we read through the prophets, we should have, even in our minds, the thought that it would be nice to sit under a teacher with all the answers. Not just cryptic illustrations or words that make us wonder what's happening now or future. It'd be nice to sit under a teacher who had all the answers both in theory, theology, and practice, who got it right themselves. Oh, to hear from the perfect messenger with more knowns than unknowns. Someone who not only says it, but has the power and authority to support it. Someone who never needs to say, well, I'm not sure, I'm still thinking about that. Someone who can draw out of us loyalty, or better yet, put it into us. So that we too could keep the law. And so like the book of the law and the book of history before them, the prophets remind us that something better is coming. The Bible says in Hebrews 1, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son whom John 1 says was the fullness of grace and truth, revealing the Father to us when he took on flesh and dwelt among us. Hebrews 3 adds that Jesus is that prophet greater than Moses. He's the greater rescuer than Moses, the, the greater deliverer of truth, the greater presenter of covenant. He doesn't just preach truth or predict truth. John says he is the truth. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He's not pointing to anything outside of himself. 
He's saying, I'm the yes and amen of everything God has said he would do. And so the Old Testament has shown us our need for a perfect priest with a perfect, meaning permanent, and all-sufficient sacrifice. The Old Testament has shown us our need for a perfect king with a perfect, meaning a righteous and a consistent kingdom. The Old Testament has shown us our need for a perfect prophet with a perfect, meaning true, complete, and effective prophecy. The Old Testament, as we read from Genesis to Malachi and finish those last words of expectation, yet another one would come in the spirit of Elijah to stir things up and to prepare us for the coming Messiah. We close the Old Testament and it leaves us with unkeepable laws, generally unexplained ceremonies, insufficient sacrifices, unreliable leaders, unfulfilled prophecies, unsatisfied longings, and unfaithful people. Why would we study that? Why would we study that when it is so unsatisfying? Because that's what the Old Testament was designed for to leave us with a feeling of longing for more or at least something better. The Old Testament can be summarized in one word, unsatisfying. And we've seen that the law tells us you need Jesus and his righteousness. The books of history tell us you need Jesus and his lordship. And the prophets say you need Jesus and his truth. You see, the Old Testament points you to Jesus for salvation from sin and slavery and lies. You need the perfect priest to deal with that sin. You need the perfect king to rescue you from slavery and you need that perfect prophet for the truth that guides you in the way of righteous living. You need Jesus for salvation. But many of you here would say, I've trusted Jesus for salvation. But maybe there are some who haven't. And even through a study of the Old Testament law, you're seeing God's design in this first half of his revelation is to show you, you can't do this. You can't keep God's law. You can't be righteous enough. All those bad things that you find yourself doing are the proof that you need to be rescued by God's hero, his savior, his rescuer that he sent, Jesus. For those that have trusted in Jesus as Lord and Savior, you follow him knowing that that same high priest is working his righteousness in you by his spirit. You know that as king, he has called you into his kingdom and he says, seek first my kingdom. Everything else will be added to that. 
But if you get this first priority wrong, don't look to the rest of this world's roles and responsibilities and provisions and pleasures to satisfy. And as the perfect prophet, he guides us by his truth. He sanctifies us by his truth as we step out into a world dark, evil, filled with lies. The Old Testament leaves us unsatisfied and longing for more. But because we know what the more is, and we'll see it clearly next week as the New Testament unfolds Jesus for us, the Old Testament also bolsters us for our New Testament Christian living. That great high priest still lives today, Hebrews says, making intercession for me. Christ today actively engaging the Heavenly Father on the behalf of every one of you who names the name of Christ. That that should mean something to us. The power of the cross, we sang. Son of God, slain for us. God accomplishing his redemption. Still, as he did snatching Israel out of Egypt, snatching us out of our sin. And with perfect wisdom now, guiding us this week to love our spouses well, to model Christ-likeness to our kids well, to exercise Christian work ethic in the workplace, to take our money and, and know how to spend it wisely, prioritizing kingdom, in our relationships, in our time. We can get all of this right because Jesus has. We're longing for something better and and we have it in Christ. So no more excuses, no more coddling of sin as God's people did in the Old Testament. Hear the prophets condemning that sin but calling you to return and do it before you leave the service. Return and say, Lord, I'm done with that. This week, I'm going to run the race laying aside the sin that so easily beset me last week. I can do that because as the Old Testament has called me to, I'm looking to Jesus. So Heavenly Father, thank you for this revelation that you have given to us that readies us for the light and the glory that shines from the face of Christ. Forgive us for esteeming lightly the value of these Old Testament books. But keep us from ever missing this glorious billboard which points to Jesus So may we as your people this week be powerfully influenced by the Old Testament so that we will again and again wonder at and be changed by the sufficiency of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Work this truth deep into our hearts, we pray. So that in the course of this week, we would find ourselves celebrating the the little victories, perhaps victories over sin, 
victories of, of rightly thinking about righteousness and law and grace, victories of returning to you in confession of our sin and finding you to be rich in mercy. May all these little victories add up to a life of grace-filled, godly living that leads us all the way home to your presence and the fullness of joy that awaits us then. Keep us faithful, we pray, as we rest and look to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.